Is this still muted back there? Oh, I hear it now. Okay. All right. If you are, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, can you turn to Acts chapter 4, please? Acts chapter 4. We are going to be looking at the text, uh, verses 13 to 22 today. So Acts 4, 4, 13. Um, And hold your place there just so that uh, we can get there to read in just a second. Um, This week in our house, there were three of us talking about death and dying. Um, I think actually I was uh, sharing with them that John had passed away. And um, we were talking about how some people don't want to die in a hospital. Some people want their family around them when they're in their last moments. Some people don't want their family around them. I saw lots of different scenarios of how people, what people desire when I was at the hospital, what they desire in their last moments of life. And while we were talking about it, um, Miley remembered that when Moses was in early grade school, so probably, and by the way, I got permission to share this, got permission from Moses to share this. When he was in early grade school, probably six or seven years old, um, he mentioned to her one day that his biggest fear was drowning in mud. Now, when I was a child, I was fearful of dying by drowning in quicksand because that was on every movie and TV show. You, you thought that it was like everywhere, and as soon as you stepped in it, you were done. Um, I found out later that was not true. Um, but I've never thought about drowning in mud before, uh, but that was his biggest fear. And so uh, we continued to talk about different things about death and um, and then I recalled a conversation I had with a friend in college um, when I was at Bible college. He had been saved as a, um, he was out of high school, I think he was 19 or 20, and he had a career path he was trying to achieve, and he was saved um, and immediately changed his career path and came to the college that I was at to study to go into ministry. And I remember talking with him one day, and he said, I want to die a martyr's death, which was shocking to me. Um, I mean, I want to be willing to lay down my life for Christ if I have to, but I don't know that I wake up in the morning and think I want to be tortured and suffer and die a martyr's death. But that was his desire. Now, that might have changed now because he now has a family. Um, So that might, you know... But that was his desire at the time. Um, The apostles, I doubt they woke up in the morning and thought, I I hope to go through a martyr's death. However, they certainly had the mindset that if that happened, they would accept it for the sake of Christ and for his lordship in their lives. Because, and we've talked a little bit about this, but and we're just going to see more of it today. their understanding, their mindset was one of total surrender of their will over to the will of Christ because of, um, because he was who or what they valued most in life. And that was kind of the driving force of our, um, the main idea of our text last week was that we make choices and we, we make those choices according to what we value the most. Well, for the apostles, what they valued most in all of life was Christ and they were willing 
to lay down their life for him. And we saw some of that last week as we looked at the first part of chapter 4, when they were confronted by the Sanhedrin and put on trial. Today we're going to look at the rest of that account and see that even with the threats that the Sanhedrin made to them, they did not budge because of their uh, devotion to Christ. So if you are at Acts chapter 4, verse 13, would you please stand, if you're able to, to honor God as we read his word. Acts 4, starting in verse 13. They've just told the Sanhedrin there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we can be saved other than Jesus. And now they say, and now it goes on to say this. Now when they saw, this is they meaning the Sanhedrin, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus but seeing the man who, had, who was healed standing beside them, remember this is all because they healed a man and were proclaiming the gospel. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred, conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Let's pray. God, we come to your word Help us to approach it with humility. And please let me handle it with faithfulness. And as we learn what you are teaching us in this text, help us to know how to apply it to real life. So as we hear what you have to say to us today, and we leave here today to go about our week, May the things that you've brought us to this moment, the specific moment to learn, may those things uh, change our life going ahead this week so that we are a picture of the gospel to those in darkness. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. All right, so they were pretty bold last week when we looked at the text last week as they proclaimed to the Sanhedrin and I told you that the Sanhedrin gave them a charge that it was a they were accusing them of something and Peter immediately turned it around and put the blame on them and so as we get into our text this week um, we're going to look at a couple of different things here first of all Peter and John this is your first point in your notes Peter and John 
had no credentials. That's the first thing that we see in our text, and it's it's something that is uh, Luke is wanting the the reader to understand because it caught the attention of the Sanhedrin. Thirteen says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that they were unschooled, they were ordinary or common men, and they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Now, the first century Jews were literate people. They could read, but theological debate generally required some kind of training. Peter and John had no training. Um, in fact, the, they, were, they were literate, but they weren't trained in what we would call the, like the rabbinic uh, schools. The, the Greek word that is in the text, the original text that tra- we translate unschooled, uh, that does not mean that they were unable to read. It just means that they were not formally trained in one of the rabbinic schools in Jewish theology. So the Sanhedrin is looking at them as people who shouldn't really know this stuff. They shouldn't be able to debate this stuff. Um, not only did they not have any formal training, but they also had no social clout. Um, they were fishermen. Fishermen were not in that in that generation and that culture. Fishermen were not uh, highly regarded. So not only did they not have the training, they also didn't have, you know, they wouldn't have been people of high standing in society. What they did have was the Holy Spirit. Now, the Spirit came and indwelled all believers at Pentecost, and so they had the Holy Spirit. So they were, they had the indwelling of the Spirit, and then the Spirit is uh, moving them and guiding them as they do ministry, as they defend themselves before the Sanhedrin. Uh, The Holy Spirit filled them with the truth, uh, filled them with the arguments that they were giving that could not be rebutted. And so you're looking at a situation where if we were, if it was in our time in our culture in America in the 21st century we would look at those people um, the same way the Sanhedrin did right we we wouldn't look at them and think man we should be listening to these guys I mean they didn't go to seminary they um, they didn't have political leaders or, or people in the community who were leaders of the community who were saying, you know, I vouch, for, I vouch for these guys. We need to be listening to them. They have wisdom. They, they can lead us to the truth. They didn't have people or social clout of any kind that would have been supporting them that way. And they had, by this time, they had jail records. So if, okay, so we came in July, but for a year, our church was looking for a pastor. If I had showed up with my resume and you, the search team and the elders are looking at my qualifications and I, they see that I didn't go to seminary. Um, they see that I didn't, I wasn't like somebody who led an organization or, or a uh, corporation from small to large and grew it into success if I didn't have anybody who was standing beside me saying I can vouch for him and then you continue to go down and then you see oh yeah and he's even been in prison would you have hired me (laughs) 
No one would. No church would look at that and think, yeah, this is probably a good guy to put on staff here. That's what Peter and John were. They, they, had, they had the best credentials, but in the eyes of the culture, in the eyes of the Jewish leaders, they were people who should have been last man on the totem pole. Um, and the only explanation that the Jews can come up with is that they conclude that these men had been with Jesus, who, by the way, also had not been trained in the rabbinic schools, and, um, and yet he still taught with authority. So that's all that they can come up with. We, there's no other explanation. They were with Jesus. Now, popular Greek philosophers, so we're not talking, we're not talking Jewish history, we're talking Greek outside, you know, Gentiles, popular Greek philosophers, uh, one of the things that they used to boast about was that they did not, they were not educated in rhetoric, and that they just lived simple lives. That was one of the things that seemed to be, you know, give somebody credibility. Um, So the thing that the Sanhedrin was looking at Peter and John as a weakness would have been something that Luke's readers would have looked at, because Luke was writing to Theophilus, who was not a Jew, um, and then anybody that his letter to Theophilus would have gone out to for them to read would have probably been a Gentile uh, culture, uh, a church maybe in a Gentile culture. So people who are reading Luke's writing in Acts they would have probably looked at that as something that was a strength, whereas the Sanhedrin was saying, you guys, we shouldn't, no one should be listening to you because you don't have any credibility, no credentials behind your name. The reason for their uneducated boldness was because they were educated by Jesus, who himself was uneducated, I put that in quotes, and bold as he taught with authority and as he confronted when necessary the those who were uh, living lives of hypocrisy and they were his disciples and it was widely understood that uh, students would regularly reflect the lifestyle and the character of their teacher so they were living a life that looked like Jesus Yet they had no credentials, and so they didn't have any, any, um, anything that the Sanhedrin would look at and think we we need to actually give these guys a chance to talk. Next point in your in your notes is that the Sanhedrin had no solution. They had no solution to the problem. So they're facing. Here's the problem that they're looking at. Here are these guys who are stirring up stirring up trouble in their eyes. They thought it was trouble. They were concerned. Uh, they're talking messianic terms. They're talking about this guy, Jesus, who's come back to life. He's the second Moses. They're beginning to proclaim resurrection of the dead in the name of Jesus. And so they are looking at this as this is a major problem because this is going to stir up a revolt. I said last week, I think it was last week, I said that that terminology, if you look at Israel's history, that terminology was always what was preceded an uprising and a revolt against Rome. And the Sanhedrin, remember, I told you last week, was 
they were more politically driven and they were buddy buddy with Rome and they didn't they wanted to put an end to this right away but they had no solution verses 14 to 17 uh, we we read that they they could see that the man that they healed was standing right there and they could there was nothing they could say so they kicked Peter and John out so that they can talk amongst themselves and here's what they say what are we going to do with these men Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they've done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any farther among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Now, you're all aware there are people, critics of Christianity, of any kind of faith. They're critics of the New Testament. Uh, Critics of Luke in his writing in Acts have asked, it's a pretty legitimate question. They've said, how is he supposed to know what was discussed in closed session? You know, the disciples have been kicked out. How is Luke supposed to know the discussion that took place when they go to executive session? It's a legitimate question, right? Um, I think there are three things that actually indicate to us that Luke would would know what was discussed. Uh, The first one is something that uh, might be dismissed by critics, but the second two I don't think can. The first one is that um, according to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, the authors of Scripture were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so Luke was being carried along by the Holy Spirit as he writes this. So it is possible that the Holy Spirit just revealed to him what was going on behind closed doors. Uh, Much like no one was there during creation, but God revealed to Moses how creation took place. The Holy Spirit could have done that. But critics would say, well, I don't believe there's a God or I don't believe, you know, God dictated this. I think it's written by men. So they might still criticize that. But the second point is that Luke was a companion of Paul. He traveled with Paul. Paul was a, he was known as Saul at the time. He was a Pharisee and he was um, a Pharisee who in his own words, he had far um, superseded his companions who were his contemporaries. Paul was a rising star among the Pharisees. Paul very likely he was in jerusalem at the time very likely would have been in the room but if paul was not in the room for whatever reason the third one is that gamaliel would have been in the room and gamaliel was paul's teacher paul was a disciple of gamaliel and gamaliel was looked at among the pharisees as someone when he when he talked Everybody listened. He was high up. He would have certainly been there. And it would have been foolish if, if Gamaliel was there and Paul was not. It would have been foolish for him to not instruct his disciple on such a controversial issue. It would have been foolish for him to not pass on to Paul. Here's what was, here's the situation. Here's what was discussed in closed session. Here's how the Sanhedrin decided to handle it. And when you run into this, because these guys aren't going away, when you run into this issue, here's how 
we would encourage you to handle it. That's what any good uh, teacher or mentor would do as they're discipling somebody um, or teaching them how to fulfill a role or a position. So I think it's safe to say that Luke would have known what was going on. So they're, they're stuck now. They don't know what to do because they can't deny it, and yet the people, um, they, they don't want the people being led in this way to follow this man named Jesus. So Peter and John, with no formal training in the rabbinic schools, were able to sufficiently debate the theological issues with the Jewish high court. And has, they have them at a point where they don't know what to do. How is that possible? Well, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, the people wondered the exact same thing about Jesus. John 7, 15, the Jews, are, they're looking at Jesus and they're marveling. And they say, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So same situation as their teacher. Uh, the Sanhedrin took notice that they had been with Jesus. And so apparently when Jesus left and ascended to heaven and he said... Um, Again, we're going to reference the Great Commission. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, and he commissions them to go out and make disciples. Um, what he does is he is passing that authority on to his disciples. He did it. He gave them the authority to be able to interpret scripture. He gave them the authority to be able to teach. He gave them the authority to um, from our current situation, but go, goes back to Acts chapter 3, heal someone who had been lame from birth, and he was 40, 40 years old or over 40 years old. So he's, he's been in, empowering them with authority to be able to do these things, and apparently he um, also gave them authority uh, to be able to stand before the Jewish high court and debate them on theological issues and get them backed into a corner where they don't have any kind of any kind of response any, at least any what we would call credible response now in the healing of the crippled man which again jesus performed miracles which was a demonstration of god's power to authenticate his role as messiah he gives his disciples the ability to heal, to authenticate the gospel message that they are carrying. But when they healed the man, they didn't, they didn't break any laws. And their gospel message, the, and the message that Christ had come and laid down, that he was God incarnate, he laid down his life on the cross for our sins, for our forgiveness, and that he was resurrected. Remember, they were to be witnesses that they saw him in his resurrected body. That gospel message could not be invalidated. So they couldn't invalidate the gospel message. They didn't break any laws in terms of the healing. So they have no option. There's no solution, no action that they can take. <coughs> here's the problem, and here's why they have no solution. The first one is that they could not deny the resurrection. They have no proof that Jesus did not rise from the dead. And I want you to take note, I don't know if you've noticed this as you've read through the text. Peter and John are proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. 
and they've done it more than once throughout the book of Acts already. I want you to take note that the Sanhedrin never once refutes that. Never once do they say, you're lying to the people, you're deceiving the people, it's not true. There's no rebuttal by the Sanhedrin to say Jesus is still dead. There's no reopening the tomb to look inside to present his body, his dead body, still in the tomb. There's no claim that his body's disappearance can be explained scientifically or any other way. Their lack, and here's the thing, this, this is why this is important, their lack of any attempt, not just their lack of the ability to prove their point, but their lack of any attempt to prove their point is evidence enough that Jesus did actually come back to life. They wanted Jesus to be dead and still in the tomb. So if they had any shred of evidence to disprove his resurrection, they would have, uh, which also would have put an end to this messianic movement. If they had any piece of evidence, they would have played that card, but they didn't even attempt to. They didn't attempt to because they couldn't deny it. And that's in their own words. We can't deny the power that these guys have Therefore, we cannot deny their message. So not only could they not deny the, could they not, uh, deny the resurrection, they also would not acknowledge it. And that's where the real problem comes in. They can't prove it's wrong, and they won't accept it. Now, oftentimes, and this is something that we need to know and we need to be mindful of when we are out sharing the gospel with people, oftentimes the world will come to the knowledge that Jesus's claims in scripture are true, but they're not ready to accept him just because they come to that conclusion. Um, let me give you an example. When we lived in Hamilton at our last ministry, we were 12 miles south of Nauvoo, which is one of the meccas for Mormonism. There was a guy who had a ministry there. Um, his name was Rocky. He had been a sixth-generation Mormon was, uh, when his Mormon faith was challenged. He was combative, um, so he was serious about defending it. And um, in an attempt to, it was actually in an attempt to, like, get back at his wife, who, who was not, I, she was not a believer either, but she, she threw a book about Christianity at him and told him he needed to read it. So in his attempt to get back at her, and he was going to, like, gather all kinds of evidence, he came to the conclusion that Scripture was telling the truth and that everything he'd been taught his whole life was a lie. Everything the Mormon church had taught him was false. So he came to the conclusion that what he read in Scripture about Jesus was true. It took him three years before he gave his life to Christ. And it took him three years because he'd invested his whole life in this system over here. Workspace righteousness, all of my time, all of the money I've invested in this. And you're asking me to give all of that up. It took him three years before Jesus was worth enough to him, was valued enough by him to be able to give everything away. And so... We often will come into 
situations like that, we might be able to convince somebody that this is true, and yet they may not be ready. Jesus might not be enough to them to give it all up. The Sanhedrin is certainly not budging, even though they can't deny what they're hearing and seeing. Uh, So they call them back in, and they command them, you're not supposed to teach in the name of Jesus anymore. And so, um, and that actually was um, Jewish jurisprudence. It was Jewish law that if somebody was not trained in the rabbinic schools, they were just common citizens, um, if they had committed a crime, then what Jewish law said was you call them in, you explain to them what they did was wrong and why it was wrong, and you warn them. And then if they continue to break that law, then you can punish them. And we're going to see that they follow that with Peter and John because in, when we get to chapter 5, Peter and John are going to go out and preach in the name of Jesus again, and that time they will be punished. Um, okay, so Peter and John had no credentials. The Sanhedrin had no solution. Your third point is that Peter and John had no compromise. So they're faced with this dilemma. We're told that we are not supposed to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Are we going to do that and, and deny Jesus? And remember, Peter, it's probably fresh in his mind the three times he denied Jesus um, on the night of the arrest. Um, and they're faced, what are we going to do? And so Peter and John reply with this in 19 and 20. Again, Holy Spirit is indwelling them and leading them and giving them the words as they're in front of judges. And he says to them, but I also want you to keep in mind as he says this, that these guys hold their lives in their hands. And they've, they have a record of not being lawful because they put Jesus to death without proper evidence. But he said, they say to the Sanhedrin, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. And then this, I love this, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Now, why would they be willing to suffer and even put their life on the line to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus? Well, the first thing is because they witnessed it. Um, That's in your notes. They witnessed the resurrection. It's true. It took place. It's true. And they were eyewitnesses of the fact. And this is one basic piece of evidence that you can use if, if somebody, if you're sharing the gospel with somebody and somebody says, you expect me to believe that some guy was beaten that badly and put to death and there's no denying he was dead. Do you expect me to believe that three days after all of that, he came back to life? Um, If you're asked that question, one basic piece of evidence for the resurrection of Christ is that the apostles were willing to die for it. No one is willing to suffer and die for something that they know is a lie. Someone might be willing to suffer and die for something they think is true, but is in reality a lie. But if they knew it was a lie, if they saw his death, when, when Resurrection Sunday came around and the tomb was opened and they, you know, the women tell Peter and John, tell the disciples, and Peter and John sprint to the tomb to go look, and the scripture tells us they, they looked in the, in the tomb, and it was empty. We're even told all of the burial clothes were folded up nicely in the tomb. 
But if they'd gotten there and Jesus' dead body was still in there, no one no one's willing to die for something they know is a lie. But they were willing to die because they knew it was true. You've got a group of people who can't deny the resurrection, and you've got two guys who are willing to die to say, we saw him, we walked with him after he came back to life, we ate with him, he taught us, we we walked in fellowship with him, and then we watched him ascend to heaven. And so they are willing to die because they know it's true. They saw it. The other reason um, we'll get to, let me read this, te- this text from Jeremiah first. Uh, Jeremiah 20, verse 9. Um, Jeremiah, is, he says, If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, he says, There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire, shut up in my bones, and I'm weary with holding it in, and I cannot. So the other reason that Peter and John are willing to die for is because they can't hold it in. They, they cannot not tell the people. They are going through the exact same thing that the prophet Jeremiah went through when he was talking about this. Your word is like a fire in my bones, and I can't keep it in. Even if I wanted to, I couldn't. And Peter and John are going through that same thing. And they say to the Sanhedrin, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Now, when Peter and John were threatened and they would not be intimidated, how did the Sanhedrin respond? When they threatened them, and then Peter and John came back at them again and said, you judge for yourselves whether or not we should listen to you or listen to God. What was their response? They threatened them, and then eventually when we get to chapter 5, we're going to see that they persecuted them. They have no solution, and so they're left with threats and persecution. And you're going to see that a lot in your life if you try to proclaim the gospel and and witness to people. You're going to see people who don't have an argument against what you're saying. And so all they're going to do is they're going to resort to persecution. Chapter 4 of Acts marks the beginning of resistance to the gospel. Up until this point, It's been mainly just the Sanhedrin who's been trying to stifle this. But chapter 4, we begin to see them go on a mission to put a stop to it. And it just gets more and more intense. And then eventually you're going to see the people, the Jewish people in the culture, join in on that. Once it began in chapter 4... It has never come to an end. It's gone from generation to generation to, to, to generation, and now we see it happening. Some, some of us have experienced it. Some of us will experience it, and we see it happening all around our country and all around the world. I want to give you, because Peter and John would not be intimidated even when they were threatened, and I, I want to give you a list of people 
that we can look at as inspiration who people who were faithful servants who refused to compromise in the face of persecution or even death i just want to i'm just going to run through this real fast you can uh write them down if you want or you can just listen but people that we can look at for inspiration who did this um most of them are in scripture but there's one at the end that's not moses in exodus chapters 3 to 12 God sent him back to Pharaoh, and he demanded that Pharaoh let the people go. He was going before the king and demanding the king do what he was, what his God was telling him to do. So he was, he knew going before the king could mean his life. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3, when they were faced with the fiery furnace, if they refused to worship the idol, the statue. Daniel himself in Daniel chapter 6, when he faced the lion's den for praying to God. Elijah in 1 Kings 18, when he's confronting King Ahab for his wickedness. John the Baptist in Matthew 14 and Mark 6, uh, confronting Herod Antipas, and he in turn was beheaded. Obviously, Jesus in all four Gospels, um, being persecuted by the Jewish leaders and put to death. The Apostles. Uh, most of them were put to death for their faith. And then this last one I want to share. Has anybody ever heard of Polycarp? He was first century uh, bishop in Smyrna. Do you remember Smyrna? Uh, book of Revelation, Jesus is telling John to write letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor, and one of those churches is Smyrna. Uh, Polycarp was a bishop, the bishop of Smyrna in the first century and he was, he was threatened by Roman authorities. They said, renounce, renounce Christ. And if you don't, we're going to throw you to the wild beasts. And Polycarp said, you will destroy this body, which is temporary, but I will gain an eternal body that cannot be destroyed. So then they said, well, then we'll burn you alive. And he said, you'll burn me with a fire that eventually will be quenched, but I will escape an eternal fire that cannot be quenched. And they eventually pierced him with a sword. But when he was threatened and they told him he had to renounce Christ, here, here was his final statement to them. He said, 86 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my Savior. Now, all of these and more all throughout history were willing to lay down their life for Christ. And although it doesn't sound necessarily pleasant, we have to be willing to do the same. And so we need to ask ourselves, and this is a hard question to ask, but can we say that? Can we say that Christ means more to us than anything in this life and if i have to i will i will put down my life i will lay down my life i will suffer whatever i have to suffer in order to be true to him and that's a hard thing to ask but it has to be asked and i'm going to close with this paul told the church in philippi when he wrote the letter to the philippians this is chapter 3 verses 7 to 11 he said this to the church in philippi after listing all of the things that he had gained, all of the 
accolades and the titles and everything that he'd gained in his life, he said this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And here's, here's why he counts everything rubbish. Here's why he's willing to suffer. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. God, we know that this life, um, everything in this world has fallen, and our, our nature, our human nature is fallen, and we battle it daily. There's a battle between our flesh and the spirit that lives in us. Um, and there is a spiritual that battle that sometimes becomes physical when people persecute your children. And I just pray that you would help us to, this week as we go from here, I just pray that you would do something to reveal to us the great and surpassing value of Christ and how... Um, he is worth giving up anything. Let us be able to say with Paul, I will give up anything and I will suffer any loss and I will suffer anything I have to in order to gain Christ. I will do whatever I have to even lay down my life. And Paul doesn't even say, I will do it if I have to. He says, I want it. I want to suffer like Christ. I want to know what it's like to be in the kind of death he died when he gave up his life for us. And so I just pray that you would help us to understand his value and change our hearts to turn away from our desires and to turn away from our flesh and to turn to Christ in full surrender, being willing, if necessary, to even die for him. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.